0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of an old episode from our YouTube series on Fallout 4. This episode was originally published on December 23rd, 2015. I'm really excited to share an audio-only version of this episode because the Fallout series is one of those series that... I've been wanting to do on history respawn for a long time uh, primarily because it's a series that really revels in a interesting alternative history uh, for the 20th century and i think the discussion between myself and my guests uh, dr jonathan hunt went really well and explored some really interesting territory so i hope you enjoy listening to the episode Next week we'll have a new History Respawn podcast and video on Call of Duty Black Ops 1 and 2. If you enjoy History Respawn, please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Twitter at History Respawn. In addition, if you're feeling generous, please consider supporting us on Patreon.com. And with that, here's the episode. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Fallout 4, a game set in a post-apocalyptic future heavily influenced by a hyper-stylized version of 1950s America. With me to discuss this game is Dr. Jonathan Hunt, an incoming lecturer in modern global history at the University of Southampton. Dr. Hunt specializes in the international history of nuclear diplomacy. John, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Bob.
0: So, John, this game begins with a nuclear war between the United States and China, and this war creates the post-apocalypse that's seen throughout the Fallout series. This version of the post-apocalypse includes a brown and dusty, semi-arid wasteland filled with irradiated humans called ghouls, as well as a whole host of mutated plants and animals. What are the implications of nuclear war for humanity and the environment, and would nuclear war create the kind of brown and dusty wasteland that we see in the Fallout series?
1: What's fascinating about this question and why I think the creators of Fallout have had so much latitude in imagining the future as, as, as they see it um, in ways that do evoke the nuclear culture of the 1950s is that at the end of the day, no one truly knows what the world would look like after a major nuclear war. There were many studies... Beginning almost in the immediate aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that continued through the 1940s, the 1950s, 1960s, then resumed with a great deal of public interest and uh, scrutiny in the 1980s about what would be left behind uh, following a, a major all out thermonuclear war. So there's sort of two ways in which the post-apocalyptic world was studied and envisaged by people in the 1950s. Uh, the first was through cultural representations. And the ones that come immediately to mind uh, would be um, famous monster movies such as Them, which features sort of a uh, an attack of, uh, of a colony of giant-sized radioactive ants, Godzilla, Mm. perhaps the most famous monster movie of them all, uh, but also the movie uh, On the Beach, which was based on a popular novel by the Australian novelist uh, Neville Shute. The second way to look at it is uh, the United States government and the U.S. military in particular were quite interested in what the aftermath of a thermonuclear war would look like. The U.S. military, the, the Defense Department, in league with the Atomic Energy Commission, undertook numerous studies- the 1950s and 1960s about the aftermath of a major nuclear war Uh, the first studies looked primarily at uh, casualty numbers the impact on the economy but as it became increasingly apparent toward the latter half of the 1950s that the residual fallout from a nuclear war would also be a major challenge uh, for the recovery of the nation uh, after the conflict and what was concerning to scientists as well as to the military to the military Uh, were discoveries that plant and animal life have uh, different resistances to radioactivity. Mm. Uh, Human beings are, in fact, neither the least nor the most susceptible to ionizing radiation. There would be many, many, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of casualties from the fallout after a nuclear war, a major nuclear conflict. But you also had to take into account that livestock would be affected severely, uh, not only livestock, but trees as well. Uh, one of the interesting discoveries, I think, around 1960s, was in Tennessee. They had built a an experimental reactor, a small nuclear reactor that they used, uh, really for research and development purposes. And during the construction, they failed to shield the fissile material uh, properly, and so one side of the reactor was was essentially emitting ionizing radiation. And what they discovered were oh my God. Uh, the pine trees, the pine trees that surrounded this experimental reactor uh, were dying off and they were dying off incredibly quickly. What they found uh, as they uh, started doing studies, biologists, but also some of the early ecologists uh, was that softwood trees are more susceptible to ionizing radiation than hardwood trees. And keep in mind that softwood trees are uh, carnivorous trees, uh, make up 80 percent of the timber that's used for uh, any economic activity, for building houses, for building, mm. uh, for building roads, playgrounds, more or less four-fifths of all timber comes from trees that would be incredibly uh, uh, vulnerable in the aftermath of a nuclear war. So, uh, if you extrapolate from uh, the many tar- the the most likely targets in a major nuclear conflict during the Cold War, which were cities where a number of in- industries, especially industrial plants, tended to congregate, where the political nerve centers resided. And then you added to that the fact that these clouds of radiation that could also often themselves be the size of a state would wipe out large percentages of timber resources in the United States. Political and military elites started asking themselves, exactly what were you going to rebuild with? You no longer (laughs) had concrete uh, being produced by factories, most of which would have been destroyed. You also had to question whether you could build, say, a post-apocalyptic school with wood, because the wood resources just simply wouldn't be there in the abundance uh, that Americans were used to.
0: Hmm. So it seems like in their original estimates, we would literally be sent back to the Stone Age because we wouldn't have building materials.
1: Yeah, and that was the popular... Um, popular expression. I think it was first coined by the Secretary of the Air Force, Curtis LeMay, uh, who was also the one who uh, authorized, the military official who authorized the the strike on Hiroshima. And while it does play into some of the civilizational discourse of the 1950s, there's there, this idea that is still you know rather prevalent today, that there are certain ages of civilization that you go from the stone to the bronze uh, to the iron, and eventually... Uh, to the steam and uh, industrial era, culminating in the nuclear age, uh, there was a germ of truth to it, uh, which was uh, nuclear war in many ways, and the aftermath of the nuclear war was simply uh, the development of our advanced industrial societies in reverse at a much faster clip.
0: Mm. So, like I said, the you know the game, you know, as you're walking around, you see what is amounts to a brown and dusty wasteland. I mean, were there any estimates done by the government to kind of guess as to what the Earth would look like in the post-apocalypse?
1: You know, there's two ways to look at it. Is it accurate in terms of what people in the 1950s, uh, scientists, policymakers thought? I would say I would say yes. Uh, there was one uh, biologist. Uh, whose name escapes me for the moment. But what he essentially said was, if you look at sort of uh, variation and susceptibility to radiation, the life forms that were most likely to thrive after a nuclear war were insects, and in particular, cockroaches. And so when you see like uh, the rad roaches, the rad scorpions, uh, this was something that sort of percolated through popular culture, but it did have a firm basis in scientific and, and scientific study as for the sort of desiccated brown landscape, the dying trees. You know, I went back at the the photograph that they took of the research reactor with the faulty shielding. And it looks almost exactly like Fallout 4, uh, the area around Boston. And so mm-hmm. I not only think that is accurate to what they believed in the 1950s. I also think it's accurate as to what would be the reality. But again, this is a question thats it's really hard to answer because, thankfully, we've never had a a nuclear war. And and second of all, we don't know if that ecological reality would stay the same for a long period of time. Uh, From my understanding, the game takes place a number of decades, uh, maybe even a century Mm, or more after a thermonuclear war.
0: About a century later. Yeah, over a century
1: later. uh, I think – and again, I'm not an ecologist. I'm not – a scientist, and so I can only speak from my sort of uh, amateurish interest as a historian who is conversant about the state of the art in the 1950s. But the thing about ecosystems is that they tend to be incredibly resilient. And at the end of the day, those massive die-offs would also provide uh, a basis for the next ecosystem to emerge. And that ecosystem might not resemble Mm -hmm. what uh, Boston looked like, before this hypothetical war but it wouldn't necessarily look the way that it's depicted in the game which strikes me as more accurate and sort of the the years uh coming soon after a nuclear war but Mm -hmm. a century you know after a century i really think you would see more recovery uh than is in the game. Oh,
0: well, well, that that's good news to me. I mean, nuclear war, not necessarily the end of everything. You know? it's, uh, you're telling me there's a chance, right?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at Chernobyl, for instance, Chernobyl is the best, you know, it's essentially our one case study of what a nuclear war would look like. And what's shocking mm-hmm. is 25 years later, or more than 25, almost 30 years later, the area surrounding Chernobyl has essentially become a nature preserve. And so mm-hmm. uh, because most of the humans <laughs> have left the area... Uh, you know this massive area in eastern Ukraine it has permitted what was previously the natural state of uh, state of affairs to return. I mean it's still in, in, in ways subtle and, uh, and big different than what came before. but the absence of human beings in some ways is more beneficial and beneficial might be the wrong word but more significant for how an ecosystem uh, changes over time than the war itself, at least as you get further and hmm. further from, you know, time zero.
0: Hmm. Well you heard it here first, folks. Uh man is worse than nukes. <laughs> well,
1: I mean that's that's uh assuming that we didn't build the nukes ourselves. So
0: well that's true. So we're doubly bad. Um well let's move on to the next question. Um so The Fallout series takes place in a world that is perpetually stuck in an alternative warped version of the 1950s. What do you make of Fallout's version of 1950s culture? And does the 50s culture depicted in Fallout 4 bear any resemblance to the real America in the 1950s?
1: That's an interesting question. And honestly, my, my immediate response is that the 1950s have always been more about myth than reality for American in American culture and in, and in American politics. Uh, if you look at the presidency of Ronald Reagan, for instance, thirty years after uh, the nineteen fifties, he would cons- continually hearken back to this golden age, this golden age of culture, of society, of politics before everything got messy and uh, divisive in the late nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies. So. Where I think Fallout is is it's interesting. I think it invokes in some ways our memories of the 1950s more than the 1950s itself. Uh, right. And how I'd explain it is, the 1950s were exceptional in a number of ways, mostly having to do with the American economy. Uh, the Second World War had uh, this, the Second World War had the effect of devastating every other center of industrial production on the planet. And so the United States, as of 1945, possessed uh, over one half of all industrial production in the world. So the United States in 1945, but especially in 1950, once it itself had truly fully recovered from the war, was at a unique place in both its history and in global history. And so the 1950s, the sort of cult of of prosperity, of affluence, of abundance was in full sale. Now, this is not to say that American society was all leave it to beaver and uh, Morning in America. There were, of course, uh, incredible social, uh, political, racial, ideological divisions in the country that when people talk about the 1950s, they often like to, uh, to sort of uh, sweep beneath the rug. So, Mm-hmm. this is where Fallout, I think, plays into the stereotype of the 1950s uh, that has that is, is regularly trotted out uh, in order to talk about a time when, uh, you know, everything was hunky dory in the United States. And if only we could go back to the 1950s, we would be we would live in a better society.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that stands out about the Fallout series and their treatment of the 1950s is this. Depiction of uh, rampant uh, anti-communism. Uh, you know, you see it uh, throughout the game's. You know, use of uh, advertising. Uh, there's all all of these things about uh, watching out for the red menace.
1: Right, the sort of loose lips yes. sink ships. Yeah.
0: rhetoric. And it's just amazing to me that uh, you know, in the context of that game, that kind of rhetoric, a kind of McCarthyite rhetoric. Uh, goes on for over 100 years before there's a nuclear war. Uh, you know, to think that you could live in a society in that kind of state of mind for over a century is pretty incredible. Um what do you think of that?
1: It's a, it's a fascinating counterfactual because the 1950s were the apogee of anti-communism in the United States, as you correctly pointed out, uh, McCarthy's crusade, uh, and we don't have time to get into the character of McCarthy, who is himself fascinating. But uh, uh, the era of, era of McCarthy, the era of, I mean, even before McCarthy, the purges of the State Department tended by the end of the 1950s to somewhat, to, to be mitigated somewhat. You see less of it in the early 1960s, less of the responses, you know, better dead than red uh, that we'd rather lose a nuclear war than to... Put ourselves at the mercy of our communist foes. That being said, this anti-communism reemerges with a vengeance in the 1980s, uh, especially with the the Committee on the Present Danger, the rise of the of the neoconservatives and the Republican Party. Uh, all of this is often uh, kind of personified in the character of Ronald Reagan, uh, who makes remarks in 1983 that. Communism would place itself on the ash heap of history, uh, which was, in fact, a paraphrase of Lenin's own critique of capitalism. So it's not as if anti-communism was not, did not have a, a prolonged life during the Cold War. Now, this didn't stop Reagan from negotiating and developing a rapport with Mikhail Gorbachev. But one wonders if Gorbachev had never entered the scene. And if relations between the United States and the Soviet Union had remained fraught as they were in the 1980s, which were which was in some ways as dangerous as the 1960s in an alternate alternate universe where Mikhail Gorbachev does not rise to become uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union manages to hold on (laughs) uh, a little longer, it's not implausible. It's not unreasonable to imagine a future where American politics is still defined by anti-communism.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's an interesting counterfactual uh, to play around with. Um, so the pre-war culture in the Fallout series places a great deal of stock in the ability and potential of mm-hmm. nuclear power to solve problems. Was this type of optimism regarding nuclear power and technology common in the 1950s and the Cold War more generally?
1: Absolutely. Answer the first question in the 1950s with a resounding yes. Uh, Throughout the Cold War, uh, there are some inflection points. Obviously, uh, the three-mile disaster in in, uh, 1979 and then Chernobyl uh, in 1986, uh, both of those somewhat uh, subverted the idea that nuclear power was, was the solution to all of mankind's energy problems. This was not the case in the 1950s. In the 1950s, for a number of reasons, nuclear energy emerged as something of a panacea, uh, not only as a energy source of potential unlimited uh, capacity and cheap cost, but also a way to cure cancer, uh, to eradicate disease, and eventually uh, to provide us with what was described as energy too cheap to meter. So nuclear power, the ability to produce electricity from either nuclear fission or from nuclear fusion, uh, was really the centerpiece of atomic energy's claim to fame. Now, this was not simply a manifestation of the inherent promise of nuclear technology. Like many forms of technology, Uh, there tends to be an initial phase of boosterism and optimism uh, that's eventually undercut by the fact that, you know, the economic principle, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's usually uh, some kind of downside uh, that you're going to have to deal with in order to make a technological regime work. Uh, In the case of nuclear power, that had to do with radioactivity and also the potential for meltdowns, uh, both of which made it incredibly costly to build a nuclear power plant but also incredibly costly to insure a nuclear power plant, let alone to deal with the radioactive waste that was the necessary byproduct of the uh, fuel cycle. So in the 1950s, I think some of it was the lure of something new. A second part of it was that the U.S. government, and to a certain extent, most other governments that started their own major civilian or military uh, nuclear programs, purposefully underscored the developmental, the economic promise of nuclear energy in order to call attention away from the fact that most of this money was being spent in order to build nuclear warheads and to fit them on to intercontinental ballistic missiles, various types of ballistic missiles in the 1950s and 1960s.
0: Right. Well, you know, something that is really strange in the game is one of the weapons. Uh, It's called a Fat Man, which uh, it allows you to catapult a small nuclear bomb uh, mm-hmm. at your enemies. Uh, but as we were talking before our recording, you had mentioned that this weapon actually has some basis in fact.
1: The U.S. military did indeed develop something that came very close to a shoulder-mounted <laughs> nuclear weapon launcher, uh, and it was called the Davy Crockett, which still stands as probably the most surreal delivery system ever developed uh, for a nuclear weapon. Now, the Davy Crockett, it had a tripod, and so you wouldn't carry it. You would kind of set it down next to you and then it would launch a rocket uh, at an enemy formation. It would have been described as a tactical nuclear weapon, which was a nuclear weapon intended for use uh, in against military units as opposed to strategic targets such as military bases or cities. And it existed. The Eisenhower administration Uh, It was developed during the Eisenhower administration. Uh, To my knowledge, I'm not sure whether or not it was put into the field. I wouldn't be surprised if a few of the units were stationed with U.S. forces uh, in Germany during the Cold War. But what was immediately obvious and is actually referenced in uh, the video game is the person who uses uh, the Davy Crockett was almost as vulnerable to the resulting nuclear explosion (laughs) as the people whom it was targeted against so it quickly kind of fell out of fashion or fell out of favor uh because not only were you going up to deal with the resulting fallout uh assuming that you were going to be outside the blast radius but even if you were to use it on the battlefield and this is a general weakness of tactical nuclear weapons that people often don't think about you know often people say well, why wouldn't we just use nuclear weapons in a military engagement against a TAKE formation? And the problem is, once you use the nuclear weapon, then you have to fight in a nuclear environment, which means that, you know, you would want to be wearing something like the armor in Fallout uh, that would be lead-lined, uh, and also to have gas masks that could filter out radioactive uh, radioisotopes. And that tends to be prohibitively difficult, difficult uh, to do in a combat situation.
0: hmm well yeah, that that's really interesting. I you know I'm not surprised that the US government uh didn't want to invest in hazmat suits and power armor for all of their soldiers. Um yeah. so I suppose I mean, it's not surprising. The French,
1: the French went so far as to test small tactical nuclear weapons and then send military troops into the blast zone in order to simulate in order to simulate fighting conditions. So you know, in the 50s and 60s, something Fallout does get right is that, uh, you know, the military and the political elites in nuclear weapon states in the United States, uh, in France, I can only assume in the Soviet Union, really did plan to fight and win a nuclear war.
0: Mm. Crazy. Well, uh, so as with past games in the series, uh, the player character in Fallout 4 emerges from an underground vault. How common were Fallout Mm -hmm. shelters during the Cold War, and were there any plans for shelter development on the scale seen in the vault system for the Fallout series?
1: So the quick answer to that question would be not as common as you would think, and there were not plans for major civilian shelter deployment or construction. There were a number of fallout shelters that were built in major metropolitan areas. These were often financed by the cities themselves. Uh, The federal government had a civil defense agency. There was a certain amount of money that was delegated to it, but it quickly became apparent, especially as the nuclear stockpiles on both sides of the Cold War uh, accumulated, that to have a viable shelter program in which you could provide shelter to, let's just say, you know, all the inhabitants of a, of a city like New York was going to require huge investments. It would have cost a, a lot of money. And, you know, frankly, from what I can tell, the U.S. military or really the U.S. government set, uh, ended up deciding, uh, U.S. Congress basically, that it would rather spend the money on nuclear weapons in order to deter uh, the possibility of a nuclear war than to build fallout shelters. And this wasn't just a money saving decision. They also made this decision because once you start planning to fight a major strategic level thermonuclear war, a a nuclear war where you're lobbing missiles at Moscow and New York and Chicago and Vladivostok, things get out of hand really fast and you just can't control the consequences. So, there was a nuclear strategist, probably the most famous nuclear strategist, um, besides Thomas Schelling, uh, Herman Kahn. And Herman Kahn wrote a tome, this 800 page book uh, titled On Thermonuclear War, where he went through every permutation of nuclear war that he could think of and the strategies that you would develop in order to win those wars. And one of the variables he had to look at was the provision of shelters. Because if you have more shelters, more of the citizenry will uh, will survive, and you'll be able to rebuild the American political and economic system more swiftly. The problem with this is once you start building those shelters, and once you predicate your nuclear strategy on fighting a nuclear war and winning a nuclear war, it signals to your adversary, it signals to the Soviet Union that you want to fight a nuclear war, and. When push came to shove, and especially after the Berlin crisis of 1961 and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, uh, the American government, the Kennedy administration, basically decided under no circumstances do we want to fight a nuclear war. Uh, It's not worth spending the money on fallout shelters because, as one individual put it, um, it would be better to be dead than to than to survive World War III, mm. uh, precisely because you mm. would emerge in what would be political chaos, environmental devastation, and economic complete economic breakdown that would make the depression of the 1930s look like look like Christmas Day.
0: Yeah. All right. So, one final question. Um, you know, one of the main factions that you encounter in Fallout Four is a group called the Institutes. Um, And this group is made to represent the remnants of a fictionalized version of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or better known as MIT. Uh, And much like its real-life counterpart, the Institute was heavily involved in military research uh, before the nuclear war. And has, by the start of this game, continued that research to create new weapons, such as a whole new class of robots that resemble humans. While American military science has yet to produce anything resembling a synth, uh, the game does accurately allude to the close relationship between the military and American universities during the Cold War. Uh, could you tell us and our viewers a bit more about this history and this relationship?
1: Absolutely. Uh, that very much was a product of the Cold War and something that, the, a relationship that still continues, albeit in a somewhat uh, lesser form today. So historians of science and technology like to talk about the origins of big science uh, during the Cold War. But really, uh, the origin story is the Manhattan Project. Uh, the more famous story, of course, is uh, the letter uh, from Albert Einstein and Leo Szilard uh, that eventually winded its way to FDR, who ultimately approved, who ultimately authorized uh the largest government led science project in history. Uh, but people forget that the science advisor to the president, or it wasn't an official title at the time, uh, but if it existed, he would have held it, um, was Arthur Compton, the president of Harvard. So many, much of the research and most of the scientists who ended up working on the Manhattan Project uh, were. Uh, major research institutions in the United States or came from U.S. research institutes. The Manhattan Project, the the very first achievement for Manhattan uh, was when the first nuclear reactor goes critical. Uh, and that happens at the University of Chicago uh, in a large room underneath the football stadium. <laughs> and uh, it's designed... By a a cohort of scientists, uh, but really the leader of that group was uh, Enrico Fermi, who was an Italian scientist uh, who had come to the United States because of his detestation of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Uh, Very quickly, a number of other U.S. universities got in on the game. And again, I I can't leave out uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, where you had uh, the laboratories of Ernest Rutherford, who had... Uh, been responsible for many of the, the early studies uh, having to do with particle physics using what was called a cyclotron, which was sort of the, uh, um, uh, the CERN of its day. Um, the Manhattan Project couldn't have gotten off the ground without the, the science, uh, the basic science and the applied research that was being conducted at U.S. universities even before the Manhattan Project. And they're quickly drawn uh, into this huge science project uh, during the Second World War, which ultimately co- culminates in uh, the Trinity test in Almagorda, New Mexico, um, in July of 1945. That's really the beginning of a, a close partnership between uh, the US military, the US government, what Dwight D. Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, uh, and what uh, uh, the Arkansas senator. Uh, William Fulbright called the military industrial academic complex. And the reason that Fulbright added academic was that uh, the Pentagon, the National Science Foundation, eventually NASA, were all pouring huge amounts of grant money uh, into laboratories at institutions like MIT. Uh, The biggest winners in this sort of government lotto were MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, to a lesser extent, uh, and a number of state schools. Michigan, uh, Berkeley is a state school too, but it was kind of one of the the bell cows. Uh, Michigan, the University of Texas, um, Carnegie Mellon, and a number of others. And so it somewhat paralleled but also essentially financed uh, the establishment of a number of of new disciplines uh, in the sciences, Uh, things such as aeronautics, Uh, Of course, nuclear physics, material sciences, uh, but also a lot of money for electrical and electronic engineering, and eventually early cybernetics and computers.
0: And we should also mention the money poured into the humanities during the Cold War. For instance, I think it could be argued that area studies wouldn't exist without the Cold War.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Area studies, which then took a huge hit after the end of the Cold War, uh, to the great detriment of our intelligence agencies. If you, you talk to anybody in D.C. about their frustration about the disappearance of area studies, they talk about uh, how much harder it is now to find experts on countries, right? Um, let alone regions. So um, the humanities, the social sciences, I mean, there, there's kind of an avalanche of money that gets thrown at the American university system during the Cold War. And it went back before Sputnik. It ratchet, Sputnik ratcheted it up because uh, for the first time, the United States felt like it was behind uh, the Soviet Union in advanced technology. Uh, but I mean, one of the clearest ways to, uh, to illustrate this is, is NASA, is the space program, uh, which famously or infam- infamously, depending on your political point of view, was more or less a smokescreen for our missile program. Uh, a lot of the missile technology that was developed with this peaceful intent of exploring and potentially colonizing space, was really fed back into the military in the design and the construction of hundreds of intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles, which more or less do the same thing uh, as a NASA rocket. They exit the atmosphere. They leave Earth Earth's gravity, more or less. They deploy a capsule. It's just that the capsule comes back to Earth much faster. Well, it doesn't slow down. It doesn't have parachutes. <laughs> And instead of astronauts, it's carrying between one and 12 nuclear warheads. So uh,
0: a fraught history, one that I think is pretty well uh, depicted in this game, especially with the kind of uh, the bent of the Institute and their mission, their belief that uh, the world would be a better place if everything on the surface was wiped out and leaving them uh, to do their research.
1: Yeah, I I think... What does tend to get left out, you know, obviously the people working at institutions like MIT, the scientists who brought in this grant money, they, they were very savvy. These were savvy operators who knew who was buttering their bread. Uh, and so they would often go to the, to the U.S. government with uh, projects, with laboratories, with research programs, uh, that when they wrote them up in the proposal sounded very good. For the bureaucrats back in Washington, but really they just wanted to get the money, and then once they got the money, they more or less uh, turned uh, that funding to their own ends, which more often than not was basic research and really interesting applied uh, applied science. Uh, many people criticize, and I think there is grounds to criticize uh, that that close relationship, that cozy relationship between academia and uh, the military and the, the, the federal government. That being said, at the end of the day, money is money. And the, the science and the applied technology that it funded uh, at places like Stanford and places like MIT are the reasons that we, have, that we had the pharmaceutical revolution of the 1970s and 1980s, and that we had uh, the computer revolution, uh, the information age, comes out of Cold War defense spending. And if you go down to Silicon Valley, that's just built on the backbone of the military industrial complex so there are mm. there were ways in which american science was compromised by that relationship but that being said we might not all be carrying smartphones in our pockets uh, if not for that avalanche of money
0: mm. well on that note i think that's going to do it for us today in history respawn thanks again to my guest dr jonathan hunt Please tune in next month for another episode.